Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in for an hour of science. A big thank you also to the team from Radiotherapy who brought us through to 11. If you don't own a piece of technology from this uh, particular century, you may think <laughs> it is uh, only 10 o'clock, but it's not. It's 11 o'clock. Uh, I think this is... Oh, good morning, Dr. Ray. Good morning. I, I feel very robbed this weekend of that hour of sleep. <laughs> well, you'll get uh, back, but it's, you know... It's yeah, a few months it's away. Like, it's like here. The whole country at once. Have jet lag. Yeah, yeah. That's a bit... Uh, well, it's interesting. This is the first year where I woke up and I was like, oh, I, I seem to have slept in disproportionately a lot today and didn't know until I got in my car where the <laughs> clock hadn't auto-updated and I thought, am I getting to triple R an hour early? And then a few seconds later when my brain you know, mm-hmm. finally switched on, I realized, oh, it's daylight savings. So, welcome to uh, having a whole lot more uh, sunshine, folks. Um, yeah. Yeah. You may need to repaint your houses, of course, because the damage that it does is just out of control. Anyway. So much for the bright side of that. Uh, <laughs> no, actually, uh, I have people over the years say to me, you know, I don't know why they do daylight savings. You know, it, you get more damage to your house and stuff. You have to be, I'm thinking, I'm not sure that's how it, how it works, how it works but, it. but you keep believing that. That's yeah, fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So we have three wonderful guests in the green room today, folks. They're all from the Bionics Institute and also one of them from the University of Melbourne. So we're going to be talking about all things bionics today, which is going to be cool. But before we do that, we've got some news for you. Dr. Ray, do you want to start? We do. Uh, And actually, I saw this and I went, oh, you know what? This is actually kind of relevant to Australia, too, even though it's research on California. And it's uh, researchers from Stanford have invented a new sticky fluid that can be sprayed on grass and to prevent wildfires. And I went, how does this work? And why haven't we invented it before now? And so what I ended up doing was learning a little bit about fire retardants and uh, the pros and cons of them. And so fire retardants, you can actually spray on vegetation and they can actually suppress uh, ignition or they make ignition less efficient. The catch is um, they're basically, once you spray them, as soon as the water dries out, they don't work that well. Oh. And there is one that, that that does work, but they only use it in emergency areas because they spray it on, but once you spray it, you do it just before the fire, it's not going to hang around, wind and rain will wash it away. So what they developed was a fire retardant that you can spray on vegetation that will hang around for, they're guessing the whole fire season, hmm. that wind and vegetation won't take it off because of what they formulated it with. And um, I thought, well... How do fires start? Isn't it, you know, you, you got the, the animals happily in the forest mm. and there's one little spot that gets hot. And anyway, in California, Australia is different. But in California, what they saw was like something like 85% of the fires are high risk areas, which are near um, particularly infrastructure facilities and roads. So if you want to know, gosh, where, where could you get a lot of bang for your buck for spraying fire retardants, there's actually pretty obvious places that you'd actually want to roadside, use. Roadside. Roadside. And, yeah. C- um, cigarettes and lightning strikes. And, exactly. And, and, and as I often say, yeah. assholes. Yeah. Because a few and, of them are deliberately. And uh, yeah. what was interesting about this was the, the actual fire retardant is a, a polyphosphate that they put on vegetation. And, and, and that part works anyway. But what they developed was a fluid that would 
not only deliver it, which is what they have now, fluids that you, you formulate it with, that, uh, that actually make it stick to the vegetation, but it also will help it keep around. Hmm. And what's great about what they did was they used colloidal silica and two, part, two types of cellulose. And the other way to read that is pr- things that we already use all the time in personal care products and cosmetics that we know are non-toxic. Hmm. We know that cellulose will easily get broken down by bacteria. It's not a microplastic, and this stuff at the end of the season when you get heavy rains should wash away, and they've already checked it doesn't seem toxic to local bacteria. It's like sand and plants. Yeah. So, you know, (laughs) it's kind of like, oh, these are pretty simple. And they were smart about how they did it. They they made the fluid in a way so it has the same flow properties as the current fluid, so they spray okay. When I say flow properties, it's a little bit more complicated than just pouring water. So it's really the rheological properties, um, which is just a way to say when it's flowing like tomato sauce instead of water. Um, So, I mean, they they did all the right things. And um, and so they've done some studies, and they figured out it's about – a liter per square meter is the spray quote requirement, which isn't bad. They're doing studies, and they're trying to commercialize it right now. And so they actually know that technology works. They've done tests. They're in commercialization. Their biggest next step is working with government agencies. Mm. Uh, and, and while it's focused on California, it probably has potential in, in some parts of Australia. I mean, our fires start out in the middle of the forest pretty easily, and it's pretty dry. But particularly around risk areas, particularly the ones around power lines, this might be something that could improve the state of things. And we're at the point where, because of the way wildfires are occurring, bushfires here and wildfires in California, it is something that's getting worse, and mm. then we're going to need to do more to mitigate risk. Yeah, And yeah. so this might be one more tool to, to help with that. Yeah, because these things are intense, and yeah. they, um, you know, if you can stem them early, yeah. you can uh, do a lot of, a lot of good. And, and if the only technologies before now were really, oh, they work till they dry out in the Australian mm. climate. That's like two minutes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, things dry out real quick here. Well, uh, I saw something interesting. Uh, this this continues to fascinate me when whenever I see information coming from this particular source. But um, uh, many of our listeners would remember the Cassini mission that ended back in September 2017. So this was the what I like to refer to as the bus-sized probe that we sent to Saturn Many, many decades ago. Well, I have pictures of some of those shots, like, yeah. framed in my office. Yeah. Not, not the ones when they went between the rings, but right, their right. first yeah, pass the, by the big stuff, yeah. I mean, and it, it's just, um, it's the mission that just keeps on giving. And one of the things that uh, we often forget is the sheer amount of data that was sent back by this particular craft is such that we, you know, the, all the team at, at NASA have not finished examining that yet. So it, it's kind of weird because you'll see news come out about new results, you know, from the yeah. Cassini mission. You're thinking, didn't that thing finish in September 2017? It's like, yeah, it did, but yeah. it sent back so much data that that data hasn't been hasn't really been sifted through yet. So. Does that mean they really haven't gotten to the crash bit yet when they slammed it into the planet? Well, I think they what, – what NASA tends to do is have sections of highlights. So, oh, right. so, for example, it's very similar to the New Horizons probe went past Pluto. The interesting thing was the highlight was getting a picture, a single image okay. of Pluto as it went past. And that was prioritized as a yeah. highlight. Of course, a lot of the other data collected at the same time was not was stored before it was okay, sent. So you know, we, we want to show the world a picture yeah. of Pluto. This yeah. is important. So so in a similar way, you know, there's, there's highlights sort of coming out of that package and then other things are done later. But one of the things that uh, was very interesting is the, you know, and this is people who listen to the show a bit will know that my, you know, favorite moon at the moment is Enceladus or you know, Enceladus, if you okay. want, however you want to pronounce it, Enchilada, if you like. Um, but <laughs> it's uh, it's one of the moons of Saturn, and it's the one that 
basically has this frozen ice crust, um, but underneath of which there is a, a, a liquid ocean. And it's just phenomenal. It is phenomenal. And the reason we know that there is this um, liquid ocean now, and this is relatively new information, is that you get these sort of like hydrothermal vents similar to what happens on Earth, and some of these things punch through the crust every now and then, and you get these spewing out like they're, – they're almost like ice volcanoes, nice. if you like. And Cassini was lucky enough to see some of these – and collect a lot of data on these because what happens is the water punches through the crust and as it heads out into space, the temperature is so low that you know they, they oh, crystallize freeze. and freeze and crystallize. And so you can you can do all sorts of spectroscopy on that and work out what these things are. And if you have the right orientation of, you know, the sun on one side, you on the other yeah. side and the crystals in the middle, you can do some really cool, you know, chemical analysis of what these are. And we've we've seen before some um, you know, some very complex organic type compounds being seen from, from this crust. But what we haven't seen, and this is this is very important, is any evidence of what's really happening deep down in these these oceans. Because if you think of what's happening on Earth, if you want to get the precursors, the sort of simple organic molecules, the precursors to things like amino acids and, and life, you need to start off simple. So if you go down to the yeah. deep ocean and you look at our hydrothermal vents and you look at the materials around those, they're pretty simple, but they're the, the originating compounds that start off yeah, that sort of chain blocks. of compounds, the building blocks of what you need to produce life. And this latest announcement from um, the Cassini program has shown that they've found a very similar uh, sort of basically nitrogen and oxygen-bearing compounds in in the data, which means, and th this is from the stuff that was deeper oh, wow. down in the ocean. So, so that if you if you think of it sort of almost like a staircase of evolution, you know, at the yeah. deepest point you've got this real simple stuff. Go a bit higher, you're getting more complex organics, and so on. This is exactly how it works on Earth, and we we're now seeing the same thing uh, in the data from the Cassini probe, even though it stopped. You know, it's, it's long gone, but it's it's data that's still giving. Well, that well, one that's awesome about Cassini, that's pretty fascinating that, you know, those building blocks might be around. And, I mean, there's other parts that come in. You want to plan in the Goldilocks zone. The ice crust yeah, might make yeah. things difficult. But the idea that those building blocks might occur in a lot of places and then a smaller subset are the ones where, where it actually went further and got yeah, and, and yeah. built. Uh, and, and we don't know for sure that these exact compounds are needed for other forms of life in other locations in the universe. But uh, the fact that you can replicate the ones that work so well on Earth uh, somewhere else and, and be able to make those uh, in other locations, it's kind of exciting. So I, I still think, um, you know, Saturn's a fair way out, but it's it's one of the most interesting locations. We we talk a lot about Mars. You know, Mars, yeah. Mars is great, but Mars will be a scenario where we may detect the past remnants of life uh whereas you know enceladus is one where you still have these activities going on um, you know, point, this, yeah. this chemical activity this chemical stew that you need is still there and it's dynamic and it's happening and it's spewing out into space and, and we can observe it so i i think it's um i think it's particularly interesting did you have another one you wanted I, to mention dr Ray? i did um this uh it was about the ancestry of sharks so um it's very hard to understand how sharks evolved. It's a big challenge because they're mostly cartilage. They don't have bones. Then they don't always fossilize in a fantastic fashion. Yeah. And so a lot of um, the evolution or, or the fossil history of sharks is figured out from teeth. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and so researchers at University of Zurich in Switzerland uh, actually have found some fantastic 
383 million old um, fish species that are cartilage based, but the, their actual their skeletons were almost completely intact. Mm. So they were able to do a lot more imaging and, and identify the, the the branch of sharks, the branch of, of of fishes where they think sharks came from. I love the name of them. They're elasmobranchs. So because they're elastic in um because in, in they have cartilage skeletons. Uh, and um, it was really interesting. They they figured out based just on these scans that um, they think um, the emergence of elasmobranchs happened ten millions earlier than previously thought. Uh, and also, this particular species, it it, it kind of looked like a cartilage based thing that would swallow its prey kind of in big big gulps. But they actually think it would be most closely related to the frill shark mm. now. And so just to be able to find those types of skeletons was, was pretty interesting. Um, the other thing that struck me about this was, okay, great, there's, there's things about sharks. But to me, that there was a, it resonated with an Australian connection that one of the, the in, in, I think it was 2006, one of the coolest studies I saw in fossils was actually from ANU, where they'd made a connection between fish and tetrapods. And um, the reason why I knew about it is I, I knew one of the colleague, one, one of the one of the people on the paper was one of my colleagues. It wasn't just they found a fossil; it was what they did with it and how they figured it out because it was a complicated fossil still in a rock. And they used X-ray tomography, so this is the same technology as CT scanning, to actually figure out what was in the rock without chipping it away. Yeah, that's nice. And yeah. and 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 so that was a really big discovery for two reasons: one, they'd found kind of this fish to tetrapod missing link in the fossil record but also how they started to do the analysis. And that type of technology actually came out of understanding porous cores and materials for rocks for petroleum drilling, where it wasn't just the instrumentation of pointing the X-ray, but the mathematics of figuring out mm. what the X-ray scattering was. And, and so at the time, that was a reasonably big technological advance. But this study, which is about 10 years later, talks like as of CT scanning, oh yeah, we use CT scanning. We got a great image. We understood things. We could look in the rock, and just the the ten years we've seen the advances in technology we've seen in just analyzing fossils, and they're learning more and they're going back and looking at previous fossils and revising things. And it's really exciting to see this technology drive this new understanding in the fossil record. Yeah, I just love the fact that paleontology is one of the most rapidly moving and exciting fields of science today, yeah. uh, which it wasn't 20 years ago, I don't think. Like, it's just had such a resurgence. There's so much going on, especially if we start investigating China and other parts of the world where you know, previously there hasn't been a lot of examination. And sadly, when you know the Greenland ice sheet melts and so forth, we'll be similarly impressed, I suspect, by the things that are found. Underneath so, that, yeah. Three, triple Now you are listening to Triple R, folks. It's Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is Associate Professor James Fallon. He's from the Bionics Institute and the University of Melbourne. James, thanks for coming in. You're welcome. Are you listening to the show sometimes? Uh, for the last 20 years, I've been listening to the show, yeah. Holy crap. Are you going to listen to this episode? Uh, well, <laughs> believe it or not, my kids actually went out to the movies instead of staying home listening to oh, it. Oh, that's outrageous. So, but we're going to get it on Radio On Demand instead. <laughs> I, hope this, I hope they're seeing something good. Um, now, you, you've been... Uh, how long have you been at the Bionics Institute? Uh, about 15 years now. Right, so um, you have seen a lot of change. Yeah, certainly have. Um, and certainly, you know, so when I first started there, we were, very, we were in fact, not the Bionics Institute, mm. we are the Bionic Ear Institute. Yep. Um, and, and certainly our focus was very much on the cochlear implant, home of the cochlear implant in Australia, uh, where Graham Clark invented the cochlear implant. Um, but since then, we've certainly diversified out into other things. So retinal prosthesis with Dr. Yep. Lauren as, uh, yep. on the show, um, through to deep brain stimulation, vagal nerve stimulation. Mm. Kind of the quip now is almost anywhere we can, we'll put 
put an electrode and stimulate to see if it's going to help uh, relieve conditions in, in, the, in the human population. Yeah. Well, one of the things I, I wanted to explore with you is so that, and you, you'd have this, I, I suspect, from you know, being with the Institute so long, is to me it seems logical, you know, despite watching you know, certain television programs in, in the 70s, you know, um, it seems to me normal for the human body to want to get rid of this stuff. I mean, this must have been a big hurdle to overcome in the early days. Certainly. So we talk about tissue encapsulation, that foreign body right. response, uh, and it's always going to happen and it always will happen. And so one of the things we do a lot of work on is actually making that as benign as possible. Mm-hmm. So finding ways to go, we will get encapsulated, we will have a tissue form around us. What can we do to either minimise that or actually just make it benign and sit there, much like an earring going through your ear, that's a foreign body that happily sits there almost okay. ever yep. um, you get a nice little scar formed around it and it sits there and is completely healthy it's when that doesn't kind of stabilise is when the big issues occur right. and so certainly uh, you know we've all seen cases where people had bad piercings that have extruded through the skin yep. that's not obviously what we ever want so yeah. we're very careful about sterility very careful about what materials we use we have a very limited palette of materials we can actually use mm. in the body uh, and we always design all our devices to kind of minimise that tissue response or if we can't get rid of it to make it as benign as, as we can how are we going in terms of the the sort of longevity of some of these devices? Because I know, like when you know, one of my friends up at St Vincent's Hospital, there, Peter Chung, you know, works yep. on on hips and you know, replacing various parts of the body with, you know, I guess they use titanium or whatever, whatever particular yep. materials these days. But they only last a certain period. You know, the body eventually breaks them down, and you you start having problems, and you have to get a replacement. What's that like for the cochlear implant? So cochlear implants actually designed to last a lifetime. So okay. uh, if you are born deaf, you can get a cochlear implant. The youngest what they've done is about six months of age. That device is actually the same device that you should be able to maintain for the next 80, 90 years of your life. Yeah. Obviously, we haven't had them around that long yet, so we don't know for sure they're going to last that long. Yep. But certainly they've been designed to last that long. And again, as I said, it's about that benign tissue encapsulation. You know, there's plenty of people out there who've had their ears pierced for... 40 years um, that's not being worn out uh, so I, th- I think the things like the hips are a little bit different because there's wear and tear this is an electronic device implanted into your body um, the only thing that's really moving around is a few irons at the interface between the electrode and the tissue right. and everything else is just sitting there hopefully being very benign so the electrode is that I mean that's the, the one of the big core interactions with the human body the electrodes last Yep, certainly. Wow. So, so most devices at the moment use platinum as the, okay. as the main material. Uh, it's very uh, inert. We can stimulate within certain realms very, very safely. We know that. And that electrode should sit there unchanged. You can explain it 20, 30 years later and it'll look almost like the day you put it in. Mm. Um, it does have some limitations in terms of how much charge you can safely put through. And that's one of our big challenges is, is at the moment, there hasn't been a huge advance in our electrode designs for quite some time because there's this physical fundamental limit about how much charge you can safely inject through an electrode before we have things like hydrolysis of water Mm, hydrogen oxygen very very bad so we don't do that but we would like to make small electrodes so we can put more electrodes in so always on the hunt for new materials that we could use instead of platinum but they actually have to be a lot better than platinum to actually warrant the effort and the and and the studies required to get them through clinical um, trials and then into the like particularly through the fda into into humans yeah yeah i I, just i was wondering about that because um, I, I work in chemical engineering, and so there's a lot of materials engineering. And the materials engineers, they can generate thousands of new materials. Not, the, I'm, I'm not saying at the snap of a finger, and it's easy, but it, it's just exponential in growth. But I, I guess the, um, the screening process must make it very difficult to to rationalize or, or capitalize on that because there's not that much they can make that 
can actually meet such stringent stringent requirements. Correct. And, and we work with a lot of mechanic, uh, materials engineers around, uh, both at University of Melbourne, University of New South Wales, Monash University, where we're somewhat promiscuous in who we'll collaborate with. We'll collaborate yeah. with anyone who's got a material that we think might be a benefit. Uh, and we're renowned for kind of ruining their dreams. Uh, okay. They'll give us a material. We'll do some uh, yeah. in vitro testing. If it yep. survives that, Sorry. we'll then move yeah. to some in vivo testing. Uh, yeah. Most things fail at that point. Yeah. And then we go, well, it looked great on the bench, but, you know, in the reality, the biology is a really harsh environment. And, and so to survive in there is actually really quite difficult. And then you've got to actually say, well, it survived, but is it bringing us the benefit we really need? Is it a you know one two percent increase? Then not really, probably yeah. going to be worth the while. We need yeah. kind of step change. Yeah, big changes. Now, what what about us as humans? I mean, do we change and adapt to these devices over time? Do they become you know so many things we hear about in the medical space become less effective over time? Yeah. So if you think about cochlear implants, they actually often become more effective over time right. due to the plasticity of our brain. So, you know, the, if you ever hear a cochlear implant simulation, they're, they're horrible. Uh, the first mm. time I heard one, I couldn't understand a word. Mm. I can now listen to them and pretty reliably get a, kind of a half-decent guess at what, what's being said. And that's our brain changing. Our brain is remarkably good at taking really poor information, uh, extracting those tiny, few tiny bits of information that's useful and then kind of ramping that up. So, so when you say, so just to clarify there, when you say cochlear implant um, simulation, you mean... I'm speaking to you, your device is converting that somehow into a signal that you're then hearing, and it sounds vaguely like my voice. Yeah, so we call it a, uh, it's called vocoding. So what we do is cochlear implants work by basically taking the, the normal hearing spectrum, breaking up into 10 to 20 bands of different frequencies, yep. and then stimulating 10 or 20 different electrodes in the cochlear. If I don't have a cochlear implant, what we can do instead is play a little burst of noise each time we would have stimulated with an electrical okay. implant, and what you hear is a noise vocoded signal then. Um, and as I said, the first time you hear it, it's, it's almost unintelligible, but if you listen to it over and over again, you start to learn it like you learn any language. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a bit like the difference between a New Zealand accent and Australian accent, although it's almost like an accent rather than a language in terms of you can tell that they're speaking, and then you can work out what they're saying, and all the sudden it sounds sounds kind of completely audible to you mm. um but if you change devices again you kind of have to relearn what it what it sounds like because as you change that speech processing strategy the nuances of that changes yeah it's it seems to me like we adapt pretty quickly to this too i remember i was in an event once probably oh, seven or eight years ago now and and at the start of the event, the opening sort of just welcome was done by this um, very young girl. She was maybe seven years of age. And it, it didn't seem to have any... It was, it was weird at the start. It was like, why, why is this young girl doing the opening? And then once she'd finished, of course, someone got up and said that she was one of the early recipients of a cochlear implant, and she spoke perfectly. It was it was quite extraordinary, and she, she hadn't had it for that long. It was like a year or two. Or yeah, so... It Within six months to 18 months is when that, that first big benefit comes, particularly if you're young. Now, obviously, mm. the old brain is a little less plastic than the young brain, yep. and that's why we do like to implant as, as young as we can. And if we implant be before the onset of, of normal speech development, you can actually get remarkably good performance in the majority of patients. Mm. If you're born deaf but implanted late in life, that's when they tend not to be as good. Okay. You'll certainly still be able to p perceive sounds, but that speech is often poor, and you have that, that kind of quite distinct speaking pattern that you often hear from deaf individuals yep. so uh, if it's done early and and it's providing useful information and that's one of the really big keys is is yep. it useful information or is it just a more distracting noise yeah. uh, then it certainly can provide huge benefits quite rapidly and quickly mm. in talking to dr lauren about the the bionic eye of course uh, there's a very limited type of 
um, condition there that's being dealt with by the bionic eye. So you can't just give it to anyone. There's you know there's specific requirements of parts of the eye still being functional. What, what sort of patients get the bionic ear though? Um, so cochlear implants, you need an intact cochlea. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you've got an ossified cochlea or a, or a severed auditory nerve, then they're no good for you. But mm-hmm. otherwise, they're 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 useful. Um, in the early days, you had to be profoundly deaf, so no hearing whatsoever in that ear. Um, but People with cochlear implants do so well nowadays that people with more and more residual hearing are actually uh, being becoming eligible for a cochlear implant. So used to be hmm. no hearing, you can get one. Now you can have a- actually things that are aidable by hearing aid but not providing you as much benefit as a cochlear implant would, hmm. which brings up a new problem of what is that cochlear cochlear implant do to that residual hearing and that's a it's a whole nother area of research um, but there are also other auditory implants so if you are ineligible for cochlear implants say you've got a, uh, a severed auditory nerve or a, a, often it's a tumor on the auditory nerve and um, there are auditory midbrain implants um, and there's even uh, an auditory brainstem implant as well and people have dabbled in cortical implants as well but as you go up that processing pathway it becomes harder and harder pr- to produce sensible perception every time you stimulate mm. now uh, one of your colleagues uh, is coming in to talk about some of this a bit later but uh, you, you're doing a bit on deep brain stimulation work now I mean what do we, what do we mean by deep brain stimulation? Uh, we're, we're talking uh, about the subthalamic nucleus which uh, the, the way we describe it um, when our neurosurgical colleagues aren't here is get a rusty nail and pretty much shove it from the top of your head all the way down to pretty much between your ears and that's where the target is oh. um, so it's, it's deep it's deep <laughs> it, yeah. it's the deep brain stimulation uh, and it's a relatively um, it's, it's less advanced technology than the cochlear implant, shall we say, in terms of we often only put down a handful of electrodes, so only three or four electrodes, um, and we stimulate with fairly brunt, blunt stimulation, often about 130 hertz stimulation, uh, and just kind of on or off. Um, and it kind of evolved from some of the early earlier work looking at, you know, what parts of the brain can we resect. So, you know, mm-hmm. if I stimulate here, is it doing anything important? And if I stimulate oh, okay. and leave it on, yep. oh, actually, I'm actually having a bit of an effect now. Oh, well, maybe yeah, that yeah. could be the, the, the treatment. Don't rather, cut that bit out. Don't oh, cut yeah, that yeah. bit out. Yep. Um, and, and that's, again, a very interesting one because with only four electrodes, you'd think uh, that's easy, you know. We, we know how to stimulate down there now. Mm. But as I was trying to allude to it, we're still stimulating pretty naively because we don't really know the best stimuli. Mm. Uh, and... You know, that, that's actually a problem for all bionic devices, even with cochlear implants that have been around for 30 years now. We're, we're never actually quite sure what the perfect stimuli is to give someone in terms of what electrode should we stimulate when, how hard should we stimulate them, how far should we stimulate them. And that's where one of the things we're really doing, trying to spend a lot of time on, is find those biomarkers, so those readouts we can take ideally from the device uh, that tells us our stimulation has been effective. We can record that back in real time and adjust our stimulation on the fly. Right. Presumably you're looking at things like the frequency of the, the, the electrical signals you're putting in, the, the waveform, so the sort of shape of the, the electrical signal and, and the intensity as well as the voltage and the current. I mean, yeah, there, all, there must all, be a, all of those, all, all that, the, yeah. that, 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 that entire parameter space. And then we also do things called current steering where we can stimulate on a couple of electrodes at once and kind of shape where the, the stimulation is oh, going. Right. So rather than just, you know, at this spot, if you stimulate between a couple of electrodes, you can move where it goes. So uh, when we tell this to our clinical colleagues and say, oh, we can give you an electrode with 100 uh, Array with 100 electrodes, they go well. How do I know which one to stimulate? How you know that? Don't give me that many. That's too much choice for me. Yeah, I can cope with four. I can't cope with 40, 400, 4,000. Yeah, presumably this also gives you an incredible insight into the brain's electrical activity in its own right 
as well as the stimulating part. Yes, so re- reading out what's going yeah. on is a critical factor in, t- in terms of, you know, patient state, what kind of state are they in? Is now a good time to stimulate or should we not stimulate? What is going on yeah. in there? Can we, can we see what the underlying pathology is? Because we're not putting these devices in, in healthy individuals. We're putting these devices into individuals yeah. that have a problem. So can we pick up what that problem is more uh, more acutely or more fine-grained than we can with other modalities at the moment? Yeah. Well, James, uh, we could talk about this for quite a while, but if we do that, your two colleagues won't get a moment in the studio, so we're going to have to thank you. Three. Triple. In the studio with us now is Dr. Sophie Payne. She's a research fellow at the Bionics Institute. Sophie, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you in. So uh, we got a good uh, overview of some of the stuff going on by James just a moment ago, but um, you're working on something very different to the, the Bionic ear, and I find this fascinating, um, this sort of deep, deep nerve uh, stuff that uh, I hadn't really thought about this, but can you give us the, the vagal nerve? Give us a bit of a rundown. What What is what is that? Where is it located and what does it do? Uh, so the vagal nerve um, is basically uh, it, it, it acts like a super highway to ca- connect the brain to the rest of the body. Mm-hmm. Um, so the vagus nerve, um, it actually comes from the, the Latin word um, um, vagrant, which means mm-hmm. to wander through the body, okay. and it, it does just that. Uh, so it has origins in the back of the neck uh, and connects to the brain there. Yep. Uh, the, then the vagus nerve also connects to um, your heart, your lungs, uh, your liver, uh, and also, most importantly for my research, it connects to the, the gut and the intestine as well okay. and in terms of like as a nerve like what does it give us pain responses does it control things what does it do uh, yes so it certainly sends um uh, sensory information um, mm-hmm. um from from your your gut um, to the rest of your brain so imagine if you uh lost your wallet and that butterfly feeling that you get that's the vagus nerve going nuts damn it um, oh. yes <laughs> Well, there you go. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and how, I mean, physically, how big is this thing? Uh, so in, in humans, it's maybe two matchsticks uh, width okay. um, um, in the neck. And then as you progress down the body, it gets uh, smaller and smaller right. as the branches um, uh, sort of split off to connect to the other parts of the body. Yeah. And what sort of things go wrong with, with the nerve? Um, so the nerve actually doesn't go wrong, um, but what we're trying to do is actually harness its own natural ability to um, cause anti-inflammatory uh, effects within the body. Okay. Uh, so what we're trying to do is to actually increase its activity, um, because when you do that, it um, causes uh, anti-inflammatory effects to um, uh, within the gut, but also within the rest of the body. So it's it's quite an unusual sort of uh, approach, um, and it's a, mm. an endogenous natural um uh, ability that we have in in our bodies to to do this, so we're just trying to poke the system and push it to go a certain way, uh, so the body can treat itself essentially. Yeah. So I mean, this is really changing my concept of, of nerves here, because for me, a nerve is something as you, you you poke it, as you said, <laughs> and I feel pain. But yes. but you, you're talking about it having a lot of other interactions with the other chemicals of the body and, and other systems of the body to do things. What well, I mean, can you just talk a little bit more about that? Because I think most people think nerves and they think pain. Yes, and that's it. Yeah. That, that's fair enough. Um, so. So, um, uh, yeah, nerves certainly do uh, transmit pain in Mm. certain situations. Um, This particular nerve actually controls uh, um, part of your body um, uh, which you don't have much control about. So it also sends motor information down um, uh, through through your body. So it it, increases uh, your um, uh, heart rate, for example, if it's overactivated or decreases your your heart rate um, if it's underactivated. Um, And, uh, yeah, so um, the... The, the issue with this nerve is that um, when um, 
when you uh, uh, start to stimulate it uh, Mm -hmm. in in this way. Uh, It has a very unusual effect with the immune system. Uh, It's quite a unique uh, effect, which uh, most other nerves don't have. Uh, And we think it's uh, perhaps because the the vagus nerve does contact the gut, which has this interface between Mm. the immune system when you eat food. uh, You know, you have lots of bacteria going through, has an interface um, with that immune system. And so it's able to transmit information um, um, based on what, what the immune system is doing at the gut interface back to the rest of your body and send information back very, very quickly uh, to tell your body uh, if it's under attack from uh, an infection, for example. Mm, mm. There seems to be a lot of other connections too. I mean, you know, people with, with migraines get nausea. I assume part of that is you know this connection between the brain and the and the gut, and and there's heaps of those sorts of examples. Irritable bowel syndrome, which is a no one you you work on, is you know those connections were all there presumably as well yeah uh, that's right yeah so um or it's actually inflammatory bowel disease um, um, yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. um and so uh yes certainly when the uh, gut becomes inflamed it um we are seeing that uh, uh the, the vagus nerve um the activity of the vagus nerve actually increases with the idea um that the body is trying to suppress this in, um, mm. inflammatory response um and so what we're trying to do is actually to um increase the um activity even more so that we can cause the the body to dampen down that inflammatory response right all right so this is forgive an engineer's naive question so when you started talking about inflammatory response i thought wow is it part of the immune system and you're like no it works with the immune system but isn't part of the immune system also to create an inflammatory response too Uh, that's right so you have the so this is it's an amazing control system in the body then that it can actually meter what the immune system might want to do so how do you make that how does that work for inflammatory bowel disease because the body's wanting to stop it but the immune system might want to start things like how do you stimulate that and know how much to stimulate right Uh, that's a great question so um when uh, patients are experiencing uh inflammatory bowel disease episode um uh, there's something that's happened within the gut that's become abnormal so um initially the the body has responded to some sort of uh, inflammatory response and then the immune system has actually become overactive uh too much um and so that's become out of control and that creates uh an abnormal pathology um within the gut uh, and also some systemic mm. um issues that these patients experience so such as fever um and so what, what we're trying to do um, um with this is just to, to calm all of that down so uh we're not completely uh, eradicating that response but it's just trying to temper that uh, yeah. unusual p- pathology now that, that that's where you know one of the other things that was you know you sent through in the information was this idea of um certain types of rheumatoid arthritis and so which is an inflammatory problem that's right um so are you able to essentially start to treat rheumatoid arthritis by controlling the inflammation response because normally people are put on you know chemicals that frankly over time you know, do a lot of damage to, to the body uh, that's exactly right so um it, this part of this technology uh it was actually started off um in some uh some labs in america um and they have found that uh, patients that are implanted with uh, this device um, that have rheumatoid arthritis can actually be treated over uh, a long period of time i think the clinical trials have gone out to um maybe several years now um, and uh, by stimulating the vagus nerve, you can actually reduce the uh, infl- inflammation within the entire body. Mm. Uh, so not just within the gut, which is uh, our focus. Yep. Um, and, and type 2 di- diabetes, how does that play into that? Uh, 
So type 2 diabetes uh, is slightly removed from the concepts um, uh, when you're treating an inflammatory disease. Um, but with, with that, the, the vagus nerve uh, innervates the pancreas. Um, and so with um, that idea, when you apply certain stimulation to the pancreas, you can start to control its secretions. Oh, so the pancreas wow. uh, produces mm. insulin and glucagon, which yeah. all of which uh, control <laughs> glucose levels in the body. Um, so by tinkering away with the uh, the input from the, the pancreas, um, input into the pancreas, uh, you can actually control these hormones, which are you know affect glucose levels, which can affect diabetes. So our main aim is to increase insulin to obviously mm. lower blood glucose levels for diabetes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's amazing you talk about this because to me it must be incredibly complicated. If you think we, when we just had, um, had, had James and he was talking about how the example he gave of, uh, in the cochlear implant, uh, you could recreate how people would hear through a cochlear implant. And so there's a, a lot of feedback. There's a lot of uh, computer programming, software, algorithms, but but the feedback's audio. Like it's very relatable. Yeah. All the things you're talking about are are looking at uh, electrical currents, uh, different chemicals in the body, and how they change. I mean, just the complications of understanding how much to stimulate and what that does in the body. Those those sound like incredibly complicated things to be able to understand and control. How do you? What is it, is it a similar framework? Um, but it's just different different markers and knobs you look at to. Um, so, yeah, I, I think um, uh, ultimately developing this technology so that we have uh, a, a readable biomarker of inflammation um, so that we can feed that information back into how much we're stimulating is the absolute sort of goldmine of mm. this yeah. neuromodulation technology. So that concept is known as closed-loop control, okay. um, and that's something that we have been trying to tackle um, at the Bionics Institute. Um, and by developing a biomarker within the gut that's both um, objective uh, and also feeds back that information straight away in real time um, so that we can actually create a very patient-specific technology um, and treatment, um, especially with something like inflammatory bowel disease because it's episodic. So patients mm, will experience uh-huh. an inflammatory episode for you know a few months and then experience nothing for many, many months. And so you yeah. don't want to be uh, doing that treatment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, during the time when they are not expressing that that disease. Yeah. So that's something we are trying to work on. Um, yeah. Sophie, just before we let you go, how far advanced are these technologies at this point? Um, are, you, are you doing clinical trials with people at this stage? Uh, yes. So um, our, our new approach um, is actually going to clinical trials very soon. So we've mm-hmm. just been um, approved for human ethics, oh, wow. um, yeah. which is very, very exciting moment. And yeah. uh, within ho- hopefully within in the next six months, we will be looking to implant a patient. Fingers mm. crossed. Oh, I mean, it's just extraordinary. I mean, you, you think back at the just the not not hype, but the, the the wonder and amazement around the bionic ear when it was you know cochlear implant was first designed and so forth and and that. But this this is like this is a whole different realm. I mean, this is a big portion of the traditionally you know chemically dealt with medical problems of people being being done in a different, uh, presumably far more safe way. That, that's right, and and we've we have received a lot of enthusiasm from uh, clinicians um, mm. uh, and also surgeons that uh, we are offering a new uh, drug three, uh, free therapy uh, it's, a, it's a new you know new therapy that uh, um, offers hope to these patients and uh, we've received a lot of enthusiasm from yeah. our collaborators uh, I can so. imagine with I mean this just sounds absolutely phenomenal especially I mean anyone you, you, if you talk to anyone with rheumatoid arthritis mm. 
the drugs don't work that well, mm. the discomfort's extraordinary, yes. and it's lifelong. Lifelong and, and very expensive. And very well. expensive. And yeah. that stuff just sucks beyond belief because it really mm. it really takes you out of the world in many regards, the things you can do. So if yeah. there was a, a relatively easy, you know, electrical stimulation version of dealing with that, I think, you know, yeah. That would be just phenomenal. So It, it, it will be, yes. Yeah. Well, um, again, as I said to our last guest, uh, we're going to have to kick you out because otherwise uh, your colleague won't have any time with us in the studio. We still, wanna, we still want to talk to Andrew in a few minutes. Uh, thanks so much for coming in, Sophie. Thank this is super exciting. We, we'd love to... Um, hear the updates as they come in on this because this is something that I think people would be super interested in, clinicians, patients, family members, all of them, because some of the diseases you're talking about are just, you know, just devastating. Yes, thank you. Thanks so much. <laughs> in the studio with us now is our third guest from the Bionics Institute, Associate Professor Andrew Wise. Andrew, welcome. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you in. Now, we're, we're back to the year again. We, we, we sort of started there today and we, we've come back. Um, and your work in particular is around the idea of delivering drugs to the inner ear. And I, I suppose my first question here is, I know there are problems in getting drugs into the brain. Are there difficulties getting drugs into the inner ear? Is that somewhere that's hard to target? Uh, yes, that's, that's exactly the case. Um, it's a very sort of isolated organ uh, and it has similar problems to, to getting uh, therapeutics uh, to the inner ear, crossing mm -hmm. that, that blood-brain barrier in this case, it's a blood labyrinth barrier that okay. it creates a huge problem for uh, passing types of drugs that you might want to get into the inner ear. So, so do we do it in the same way that we do the, the, the brain one, where we just absolutely you know, slam people with massive doses for the rest of the body and hope a little bit gets in? Is that the... Uh, for some types of therapeutics, that's the case. Sort of the small molecules, um, steroids and, yep. and cl classes of drugs like that. But if you're looking at other types of drugs that you might want to get into the inner ear, uh, the, the field is, is certainly moving towards more local therapies, so local delivery therapies that okay. we think have, have a better chance. <laughs> What does that look like? I, I, I hesitate to ask if this means putting some sort of syringe or something in my ear. Or, or, uh, it, it may involve that. Uh. Um, so, and it's it's not a, a complicated process. Uh, uh, ENTs, so ENTs and throat surgeons do it quite yep. routinely. Um, for instance, young children have grommets in put yep, in their ears yep, if, if they have middle ear problems, and, and my son has has some at the moment. Oh, my brother had that. The little little tubes, yep, yeah, that they put in the yep. ear, yeah. correct, yeah. yeah, yeah. So to to um, go through or around the eardrum is is not a, a huge problem. It it is a little bit invasive, but if the outcomes warrant that approach, then then I think a lot of people are you know very much prepared to to have that procedure. Yeah. In terms of uh, other strategies, are there other ways? I read this weird thing once from some. I think it was some Canadian research paper about the idea of using ultrasound to allow you know chemicals to pass through the the brain barrier and and that that had shown some effects that were beneficial. Are there, are there other strategies? Yeah, I've I've also uh, aware of that research yeah. and it's it's increasing. It was just me. The, <laughs> That's great. It's, it's trying to increase the you know the porosity of the, of the, and, the yeah, membrane that, yeah. so that they open up and, and allow the the therapeutic through. There's a lot of different ways of of trying to to get um, therapeutics across there, but I think um, the 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 anatomy of of the the inner ear, the cochlea, is such that there is a a, a, a small or fine membrane in the inner ear called the round window membrane, which is open to the um, middle ear. Cavity. So oh, okay. there is this this membrane that that creates quite a, a interesting location to 
to deliver therapeutics through. And, and when we talk about local drug therapy, it's delivering therapies in, into the middle ear and, um, mm. and, and having them go through that round window membrane where yeah. they enter the, the inner ear space. Uh, now, I mean, you're at the Bionics Institute. Why, why is it important to be able to deliver these drugs to that region of the ear? Uh, so um, we're, we're interested in treating hearing loss, um, yeah. and it's a, it's a, you're probably aware it's a huge problem in our community. Uh, there's probably 300, 400 million people worldwide with significant hearing loss, and that those numbers are, are going to go up, particularly with an ageing population. So it's a very big problem, and it, it has um, quite wide implications yeah. uh, and links to other types of neurodegenerative diseases. So there's a real need to develop ways to um, treat this condition if you feel that you're starting to lose hearing and you go to see a cl- your your doctor there's really not much they can do for you they, there's no drug therapy um, and the kind of things i'll say is come back when it gets worse and we can give you a right. hearing aid or yeah. if it's even worse than that we can give you a, a cochlear implant so it's a real frustration for the clinicians not to be able to, to um, prescribe uh, an effective therapy so we're trying to change that how much is is frequency versus volume? Because the other day, someone uh, in my family was playing something on a say, you know, a, a tablet of some some brand, and uh, I can't remember who it was. But someone said that's a really annoying noise, and I'm like, what noise? <laughs> and I think I've reached to the point where my frequency yeah. range seems to be changing. Uh, can still hear fairly well, but is this just natural? For this yeah, movie? that and that's correct. So you, we typically lose our ability to hear high frequency sounds okay. first yeah. that they're you know uh, the first cabs off the rank i guess in terms of hearing loss it's those high pitch high frequency sounds that that go first and i know my over the years mine have certainly dropped um but it, it's even more than that i think uh, hearing loss might you might detect first signs of hearing loss in you know challenging sound situations like mm. a, a busy restaurant where you're right. sitting around a table and there's lots of background noise and you're trying to trouble. listen to a voice listening listening to a conversation yeah. you can hear that words are spoken but not necessarily be able to you know comprehend what what words they are okay. so there is, the, is that and, and that's hearing not cognitive I, I wondered whether i was getting some sort of cognitive decline because you know the ability to process all that information but that's that's hearing that, and certainly a, a major component of that right. is is from damage to the inner ear um, yeah. and the first things that happen are you, you might be aware the the inner ear has um, uh, tiny hair cells mm, that are, yeah. are sensitive to the vibra- the vibrations of sound and, and transfer that information to electrical signals that are passed to the nerve and then up to the brain and it's the connections between those hair cells and, and the nerves are the first to go and every time you lose one of those connections you, mm. you lose a little bit of your hearing mm. So in in your work it says that you're you're looking at at nano engineered systems to deliver drugs because I assume it's it must be way more complicated than just hoping a drug is in the circulatory system. So what's the nano engineered component there using nanoparticles or something that that's a, a vehicle to deliver the the therapeutic to the right cell or yeah so we've um had a, a history of research looking at the delivery of growth factors to the inner ear so these are uh, quite large proteins that the the body normally produces and and releases to help with the health of of the auditory nerve and and their connections to the hair cells but in when we have hearing impairment we start yeah. to lose the supply of these growth factors but and so we're looking at ways to replace or um this lost uh, growth factor supply and part of the problem of delivering these growth factors is they have such a short half-life that they're only hanging around Uh, in the body for you know in in some cases a couple of minutes so 
creates a real challenge to to develop ways to successfully d- deliver growth factors and that's yeah. where the nanotechnology comes in so we've been collaborating with a, a group from Melbourne University who have expertise in in the the development or and and um, the creation of, of drug delivery systems mm. based mm. on nano engineering technology and by using this technology we can now start to um, uh, generate devices yep. that can load large amounts of therapeutics and, and release them quite slowly yeah. over time. So we're starting to break down some of the little barriers that are preventing the the, the um, development of hearing Sound, therapeutics. Sounds really good, Andrew. We're going to have to stop there because we're almost out of time. All I can say to you is hurry up. Um, <laughs> not getting any younger. I need these therapies fast. Man. A lot of people <laughs> Look, do. <laughs> it sounds really good. Andrew, thanks so much for coming it's in and chatting to us on, on Triple R. It's been great having all you guys from the um, Bionics Institute in today because it's uh, such a fabulous uh, Australian sort of uh, series of, of research that's been going on for so long. But um, thanks so much. Thank you, Shane. Great. Associate Professor Andrew Wise, also from the Bionics Institute, Dr. Ray, thanks so much. Thank you. It's good it having fun. you in, just the two of us, but yeah, uh, yeah no problem. We're all good. Uh, we're going to hand over now to the team from Eat It, folks. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember that science is everywhere, and we will come back to you again next week with another show filled with science. Have a great Sunday. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.